You are listening to the 3CR podcast of Encyclopedia. Encyclopedia is broadcast live every Sunday from 2 p.m. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au. Uh, I feel much more ready for the afternoon now. Uh, and on the program this afternoon, uh, we are going to be talking about uh, some screenings that are happening at Cinema Nova as part of the Melbourne uh, Documentary Film Festival. Uh, the screenings are of a movie called Dosed, uh, and it's a movie um, largely about... Uh, Ash, you, you didn't actually see it last night. You were there last night at Cinema Nova. I, I, I'm going tonight. I was there, but I didn't actually see the documentary. I believe the focus is on uh, treating people that have severe substance use problems, especially with opioids. Yeah. Uh, so that's heroin's... Um, uh, yeah, heroin, that's the main one that people know, but um, other opiates as well. There's plenty of prescription uh, opiates and other painkillers uh, that are opiate-based. And using psychedelics, specifically psilocybin in magic mushrooms, or psilocybin mushrooms, um, to uh, heal people of that. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. We've also got uh, your interview, Ash, coming up. Yeah, so I recorded an interview earlier this year at the National Libertarian Conference, the Friedman Conference, with Arvins O'Brien, who's a libertarian activist, um, uh, cannabis legalization activist, and now in the legal realm, a uh, cannabis entrepreneur. So we talked about, um, well, all things cannabis legalization, how that process has worked, how it's going, what the, the pros and cons of different jurisdictions are. And we also got into um, Silk Road a little bit at the end of the interview. Uh, Arvin's actually regularly writes to uh, Ross Ulbricht, who is the alleged founder of Silk Road. And um, we talk a little bit about uh, that case and what Silk Road was and how it came to the attention of law enforcement, etc., etc. Uh, but first, let's get into some music. Uh, this uh, was one of the artists playing last night at the uh, first birthday of a crew that are putting on a lot of bass gigs around Melbourne, uh, Home Bass, uh, and they had their first birthday gig, gig at Bar 303 in Northcote. Uh, and among the lineup playing last night, Hypnotech, uh, Aura Mechanic, but also Griff. And this right now is Griff with Dawn Trails on Psychedelia on 3CR.
don't have a million dollars and still want to have a good education for your kid, tune into the Dogs Program. We are the defenders of government schools. 12pm on Saturdays here on 3CR. 855 and AM Dial podcast streaming live on 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital. We defend government schools because they need it. Brainwaves. Hear the world differently. Bringing community mental health to you, raising awareness and challenging stigma. Tune in to 3CR Community Radio, Wednesdays at 5pm. Melbourne's Drive Time Radio Program, featuring community organisations, powerful stories and information. Find us at brainwaves.org.au. Proudly sponsored by Wellways Australia. It's in Psychedelia on 3CR Community Radio, 855am3cr.org.au uh, and 3CR uh, Digital. Um, if you're interested in the psychedelic renaissance, make sure you stay uh, in touch with the local Australian conversation. Check out the Entheogenesis Australis YouTube channel uh, with full talks available from 20 years of psychedelic symposia and conferences uh, around Melbourne, Victoria, and with speakers from across the country and around the world. Head to youtube.com forward slash entheotv. Uh, now, as, as we mentioned earlier, there's a movie screening as part of the Melbourne doc, uh, Documentary Film Festival that's happening at Cinema Nova. Unfortunately, I'm, t- I'm telling you about this, but all the tickets have been sold out for every night, I believe. You can check on the Cinema Nova website. I, do, I feel like there might have been one that had a couple of tickets left, but it's very limited. But the movie is called Dosed. Um, it's a movie uh, about uh, using psychedelics like psilocybin to treat uh, addiction. So using one drug to treat addiction to another drug, which might sound loopy to those who uh, have just started paying attention to this conversation, but uh, guess what? All the drugs are very different uh, that are scheduled in the same way um, because our scheduling system is not at all uh, scientific. Uh, but as part of the um, the screenings, there's also been some panels that Cam Duffy from the Australian Psychedelic Society has been um, uh, putting together, uh, and Cam's done a good job of that. Uh, last night, he had uh, Melissa Warner, Martin Williams, and Dr. Marg Ross, or I should say Dr. Martin Williams, Dr. Marg Ross, and Melissa Warner. Uh, Melissa, one of the co-founders of the Australian Psychedelic Society and also at Mind Medicine Australia. Uh, Martin Williams, uh, the president of PRISM, Psychedelic Research in Science and Medicine, and... Um, uh, Dr. Marg Ross, who is the uh, psychologist for the St. Vincent's psilocybin trial, and they were talking uh, last night about, well, no, I mean, they were taking questions from the audience, but they were talking largely about um, the uh, the trials and about what's, the, what's coming up. Uh, yeah, because of the nature of the documentary um, in using psychedelic uh, substances to treat addiction, they talked a lot, a lot about that and how that might work in Australia, how that's progressing compared to other trials, what the differences and, and um, similarities are between the different uh, kinds of psychedelic psychotherapy going on and the kinds of different substances used. So in the documentary, they uh, uh, cover magic mushrooms, psilocybin and ibogaine in particular. And ibogaine is uh, for people that are more familiar with the, the psychedelic space and the, the research going on. They might be familiar with this substance, but it's maybe a little bit more obscure to, to people less familiar with that. So um, talking about how that might work in therapy and what the risks and benefits of that are. So it was quite a broad conversation and, and some really good questions from the audience as well. Uh, and one of those questions came from long-time 
uh, psychedelic activist or mystic, um, um, what does Greg Kasarik, but herder of cats. Herder of cats. Herder of cats, Greg Kasarik, <laughs> yeah. um, who has uh, a long tail. You can go find his website, kasarik.com. Uh, that's K-A-S-A-R-I-K.com. Um, but uh, Greg uh, was asking some questions last, or asking a question last night, uh, and we'll just have a listen to this quickly. We have the full panel for future, but let's have a, have a listen to one of the questions from last night's uh, panel following Dosed. I see with a lot of research is that you go in with the medical model and even in the movie we saw it sort of again there's that conversation about spirituality and I think um, what's lacking I know certainly in my own training um, in psychology is a recognition that the spiritual realm actually exists for people and it's real and I think that in some respects our medical model takes away from that and denies people the right to experience things spiritually. You know, they've got to experience it medically. And so I'm just wondering what your view on that is as the researchers involved in this particular research, uh, which is interesting again, because you know, the only people that you can give this stuff to are people about to die, uh, which says a lot about the process. But so, yeah, so I'm just interested in your ideas regarding the medical versus spiritual. And just uh, yeah. time. I think this is reintroducing the spiritual to the medical. I have to say, and I think really the the, the Hopkins group has has been pivotal in that. Uh, and in some ways, it's this is this is the most effective and expedient way to to reintroduce uh, you know bring that you know, this that nexus of, of the two sides of the of the equation. So I'm hoping that. Um, Certainly within the St. Vee's trial, we're planning to uh, incorporate um, uh, qualitative sort of uh, questionnaire and, and, and get some insights from people, both, uh, both the participants as well as the people around them, um, around the quality of their experience effectively. And I think that's really going to provide us an opportunity to reintroduce that, that, uh, that into the diabetes and into the conversation. I guess that the point of entry in, in psychedelic research in Australia it was lucky that it was palliative care because um, palliative care as a model is not just the medical, it's also the spiritual and emotional and psychological and family system aspect of it. So from that point of view, we, we actually use that as a bit of a, an, argue, you know, an argument to go into this. This is fantastic for people's um, spiritual well-being. We know that um, if people do have um, uh, higher kind of rates of spiritual well-being, that tends to buffer them from depression and anxiety. We know that at, um, at end of life. So uh, we are actually, we've got measures of spiritual well-being and also mystical experiences and things like that. And also um, by our interview, that's something that we're, you know, um, really, really interested in. And again, um, going on from what Martin was saying as well, um, the Johns Hopkins crew really, um, you know, I think cemented that in the place of psychedelic research as well. Uh, and they did it very nicely actually in their setting protocol that they did in 2008. Um, which they sort of said, you know, how to do psychedelic research safely. And they stitched that in quite nicely in terms of having, um, you know, uh, some, some rituals, some intent around it, um, as well as some other ways to sort of mitigate the, the risk of having a not so savoury experience. So, yeah, I think it's a, it's a really, really um, important point that you make as well. We don't want to lose that. Um, I'm mindful that, you know, when we were writing the protocol, um, you know, the things that, you know, we would meet, you know, weekly over a breakfast and an egg and, um, <laughs> Um, and, and talk about how we were going to write this, but the thing that sort of started to sit very heavily with me was this kind of uh, socio-cultural responsibility of dealing with this very ancient medicine 
um, and then we had to write a very clinical, modern medical protocol around it. Um, but again, you know, because we had um, uh, you know really uh, robust and very considered research from people like Johns Hopkins and NYU and UCLA, um, we've got some some good academic kind of stuff to sort of you know push the fact that we need a good uh, you know um, uh, consideration of spiritual um, functioning. The last thing I would add to that is I just, I just don't think that peak or profound or spiritual experiences should be outside the privy or the investigation of science. That we can develop a framework of understanding around these apparently ineffable, yet we are becoming to get closer to what that means or what it could mean. And I don't think that that's something that science has to be find contradictory to its stance because I feel like space was, and still is, but space was once a complete mystery. Um, my uncle who studies theoretical physics, he often describes mysteries in science as black holes, or you know, we're now charting what a black hole looks like and what it means. And just because currently spiritual experiences or peak experiences or lucid dreams are a Neuro neuroscience black hole, a mystery, doesn't mean that we can't chart and understand and observe. Thanks very much. And on that note, sorry we are out of time, it's time to chart the rest of our evening. <laughs> so thanks very much, Margaret, Martin and Melissa. And you just heard from Dr. Martin Williams from Psychedelic Research in Science and Medicine, PRISM. Uh, Dr. Mark Ross from the St. Vincent's, uh, she's a psychologist, uh, and she is heading up the uh, St. Vincent's trial into using psilocybin uh, to abate end-of-life anxiety. Uh, and also Melissa Warner, one of the co-founders of Australian Psychedelic Society and also at Mind Medicine Australia. This is in Psychedelia on 3CR. Uh, and that was the panel uh, following dosed uh, screening at Cinema Nova as part of the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. And uh, one of the... Um, uh, the uh, well, uh, you just heard his voice then, Cam Duffy. Uh, Cam from the Australian Psychedelic Society has been putting together uh, the dose screenings and um, also the panels following it. Cam, welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, so uh, there's another screening tonight, another another one on Tuesday and Wednesday, and you've got slightly different panels uh, lined up. Um, was was last night the first time you'd seen the movie? It was, yes. I'd only seen the trailer before then. How how what what's your reaction? How was it? Um, well, it was a little bit unexpected in terms of um, just some of the filmography and just the, the the level of detail. I'm used to with my um, professional life a lot of detail, so it wasn't quite the amount of detail I would normally expect to get about someone before they go through a treatment process. Um, but there were some very interesting moments as they went through the more unconventional or psychedelic approach to treatment um, that you could actually see the, the healing in this person with their, their, their body language essentially there. You could actually see it on their skin and everything. It was, so that was really interesting um, uh, to sort of witness the journey of. And the other the other side of, uh, to this, of course, is the uh, is the panels. And I believe, is there a panel for every after every movie or, or three out of four? Uh, essentially, there is, um, but the main two days of panels were yesterday and later on today. Yep. Um, and we'll just see what we can uh, come up with for Tuesday, Wednesday, uh, aside from myself. But there will be uh, Meredith, who's been on your show recently. She will uh, be there on uh, Wednesday, I believe. 
as a panellist. And what sorts of themes are you uh, investigating with the panellists? Um, well, what we're really after is um, what individual panellist really um, observes, notices, and would like to sort of um, comment on based on you know, what was meaningful for them as they sort of um, witness this woman's journey, essentially. And each one of them's got a different lens that they're looking through, and they've got different interesting things to comment on as such. So the whole uh, dose is all focused on one particular person's journey? Is that the... Uh... That, that's the impression I get from the trailer. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So a young lady uh, based in Vancouver, her journey uh, into recovery from opioid uh, dependence with underlying mental health issues that the film sort of aims to sort of get round to. Um, and she goes through the conventional, um, especially biomedical approach with opioid substitution therapies. Um, and that doesn't work out so well for her, so she tries unconventional psychedelic therapies um, eventually, and although it was a bit disjointed in the beginning, she they find the right kind of a approach eventually and um, get her to where she wants to be in the end. And uh, I believe the film will be made available online in the near future. I mean, you can probably find it online already if you uh, if you look hard enough, but um, it is, at the moment, I believe, uh, the, the filmmakers are going around uh, the world to different parts, different countries, and uh, trying to get it into things like the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. Um, but you will be able to to see it in the future. Uh, uh, any any uh, final final things you wanted to say, Cam, about uh, how it's all been going? Ah, we just we had a great panel discussion, as you heard a little bit of segments from it just, um, just before. So yeah, we've had some great panel discussions that have also focused on the local uh, psychedelic research scene, um, especially in Melbourne. Um, so yeah, we've had some great discussion after reflecting on this woman's journey. And they will also be um, videoed, at least last night's and uh, tonight's will be videoed and put up onto the uh, Australian Psychedelic Society uh, social media in the future as well. Yes, uh, thank you very much for joining us, Cam, and I'll see you this evening at Cinema Nova, and if you want to find out any more information, follow us on social media. Thanks very much, Cam. Great, see you. And that was Cam Duffy from the Australian Psychedelic Society who has been putting together the uh, the panels and also uh, doing a lot of the logistical work uh, behind the dosed screenings at Cinema Nova. This is In Psychedelia on 3CR. <laughs> So um, next we're going to hear an interview that I recorded earlier this year at the National Libertarian Conference, the Friedman Conference, um, biggest gathering of sort of libertarian thinkers uh, around the country and many international guests also. And I took a moment out of one of the afternoons to record an interview with Arvinz O'Brien, who is a uh, longtime libertarian activist a cannabis legalization campaigner and also a cannabis entrepreneur in the now legal uh, realm of California. I'm a libertarian and uh, I define that as an adherence to uh, a philosophy of non-aggression and, uh, and therefore my, my goal is a society as voluntary as possible. And so in that um, I, I, want, I work to reduce or completely uh, end government force in every aspect of our lives as much as possible. And, uh, and so that includes uh, anything from regulations, taxation, to, uh, to what we are allowed to put in our bodies, what we are allowed to think with our minds. Um, and, uh, and as a result, um, that... 
and then from that, I uh, I find that that that's informed my political philosophy to a degree, uh, or it's informed my political philosophy. Uh, ultimately, when it comes to that political philosophy, has informed my perspective on on, on drug legalization um, or decriminalization, as uh, as one would prefer. My political perspective has informed my uh, positions on things like drug legalization um, or decriminalization because I I believe that the government has no right to tell me what I can or cannot put in my body, no matter how dangerous someone might think it is. And, and I think a lot of substances aren't particularly dangerous, and, uh, and I think we waste a lot of time and resources, money, and, 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 and ultimately also harm a lot of people in the process of trying to prevent them from consuming things that ultimately aren't that harmful, um, and even when they are, putting them in jail doesn't make them, it doesn't make it any better. You know, it's funny because I, I think the first time I ever did a drug legalization campaign was I was working with a group called Common Sense from Common Sense from Marijuana Policy, uh, which was a uh, reform group kind of related to the the National Organization of the Reform for Marijuana Laws, Normal, um, and now we have a larger organization called the Marijuana Policy Project. Um, but at the time, there was just this group called Common Sense Organization, uh, the Common Sense Marijuana Policy, or Common, Common Sense Marijuana Laws uh, group. Um, and the idea was uh, to simply bring about the idea of not having of not having criminal penalties for marijuana, decriminalization, medicinal legalization. We we tried a, a number of different tactics, and uh, and that was in the state of New Hampshire, which is a small state, it's about 1.3 million people. Um, if you're familiar at all with the U.S. political system, each state has a certain amount of uh, of sovereignty in like what laws they can put forth, which is why we have so many states that have some form of legalized marijuana, but not all of them. Um, so New Hampshire was a really interesting like pocket because this was like 2004, and uh, and. In that, we that was not a successful campaign. Even to this day, New Hampshire has finally just recently legalized uh, medicinal marijuana, but is still is still dragging its heels on recreational. And it's been interesting because even this time around, it was a Republican governor who uh, who opposed it. So you know, there's a lot of people in the in the U.S. who will pretend that 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 Republicans can be more uh, friendly to libertarianism, but apparently not when it comes to pot in a number of circumstances. And is that how it's been? Has it been mostly democratic states that have moved further? I would say democratic states are more likely to, to, to move uh, towards the legalization of marijuana. It tends to be a left issue. Uh, there, are, there are people on the right who are doing things about it. We've got uh, Senator Rand Paul, who's a Republican. Uh, he's definitely, uh, he's, he's moved to uh, deschedule de uh, marijuana in the U.S., which is basically to reduce the, reduce what it, how harmful the government considers it and, uh, and how, uh, how hard the Drug Enforcement Agency goes after it. Um, but, so we, I mean, we've definitely seen some Republicans on the correct side of the issue, and we've seen some Democrats on the wrong side of the issue. So it's, it's, not, it's not hard partisan lines, but I would say that almost most Democrats that I know that are not politicians, most Democrats that I know are just completely pro-legalization, whereas, I, and, they, and they seem to think their party is, even when it's not, um, and, uh, and Republicans, um, it, t it tends to be a harder sell for some of them. But so in 2004, we did uh, that campaign, 2004, 2005, and I still remember like going to the state house. And in New Hampshire, New Hampshire is a very interesting uh, um, uh, system of its own. Uh, New Hampshire has 
there's every so each state has a like a, a, a congress and they have their state representatives which are much more direct and then the state senators and there's a lot of fewer state senators than state uh, uh, congress people and the state representatives in new hampshire um each there are so many state reps in new hampshire that each one uh, represents about 3,000 people. So wow. if you run for office in New Hampshire, I mean, it's, a, it's also, it's an unpaid position. Uh, so it's pretty wild. It's like, I think they make $200 a year or something like that. Mm. So it's an unpaid position. It's not something that, you know, you, you don't go to be a state rep and, and make money off of it. Uh, but you get to influence the laws in New Hampshire and, uh, and you have a, a constituency of about 3,000 people. So you can actually knock on the doors of every single person in a week if you want. Um, and I, but the, the problem with that is that some state reps, State representatives will often be people that can afford to not be paid while doing legislative work, um, and and some of those people are not particularly well educated. Um, some of those people are just they're retirees, so they're not particularly in touch with things. Um, and I still remember being in the state house one day and talking to a rep and trying to say, "Hey, let's just have a conversation real quick about you know this this bill that we're hoping to like get get introduced and maybe get used to sponsor." And I remember the guy looking at me and going, and we were in the elevator and I was trying to give him a quick elevator pitch and he goes, he goes, "We uh, we we can't legalize marijuana." Um, marijuana is stored in the fat cells and I was like what like what like what how is that an argument for this and and he was like marijuana is stored in the fat cells we can't legalize it so um, so yeah this man says to me that marijuana is stored in the fat cells and I'm like okay well, how is that relevant what like okay like can we have a discussion further from this about you know how this will be beneficial to no he just kept repeating that marijuana was stored in the fat cells and therefore we couldn't legalize it it made no sense but that's the kind of shit we deal with so <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's that that story is to illustrate how dumb some of the people that write laws in the u.s are um but i've worked on campaigns uh uh, in California, we had a ballot initiative. California legalized medicinal marijuana in 1996, but in 2016, it finally pushed through recreational. Uh, and there was massive debate on both sides about how it should be done. Um, there were arguments about the level of taxation. There were arguments about you know what restrictions were put in place. Uh, it has made it harder in the medicinal market, so that can be a struggle because medicinal marijuana isn't taxed, but medicinal marijuana is now harder to uh, to to procure because a lot of the medicinal shops kind of moved into the recreational space so and and they I think they had to procure new licenses so it's been kind of a clusterfuck but um, ultimately I'm very glad that, uh, that at this point a majority of US states have some form of cannabis decrim decrim or legalization there are 10 states I believe that have full legalization mm -hmm. And uh, and and I've been I've been involved. I mean, I've donated money to the marijuana policy project. I've uh, I've gone out and 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 signed petitions and 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 knocked on doors and tried to inform people and helped with like Facebook and YouTube ad campaigns and um, and so it's definitely a fight that we're winning in the U.S. But it is still ridiculous how far we have to go. You know. And in terms of um, so the United States is interesting because they've had these different. Little microcosms? Yeah, little microcosms of legalization. So instead of one country kind of giving us a model that we can look at and how it's worked, we have multiple models. Mm -hmm. So what do you think are some of the key things that different uh, different jurisdictions have done right or maybe done wrong and other people can learn from? Yeah, um, I, think, I think what you've seen in... Um, 
there's been a number of states. I feel like I feel like Colorado's done a reasonable, a reasonably good job of. Uh, of, of, of striking the balance. It's tough when you're when you're talking to politicians, you know, they want to know what they get out of it. And, uh, and so in some cases, um, you know, being able to compel them by the idea that they get to tax and regulate something, it's, it's, it's kind of anti-libertarian, but it also incentivizes those politicians to say, okay, I can fund schools if I do this, you know, things like that. So it's, a, it's kind of a tough, like, you know, push and pull. Um, but I would say that um, California, one of the things that California did very badly was uh, California, California's taxes are so high on marijuana because they said, hey, we're going to tax marijuana to high heaven and we can pay off some of our deficits. Um, but so in the in California, not only are there high taxes for sale and uh, for for sales in general, then you add the marijuana sales taxes. Then you add, so you add excise taxes, you add municipal taxes and county taxes. It means that the aggregate tax that you may pay on your marijuana um, might be forty five percent. So if I go to buy a ten dollar joint, I'm suddenly spending fourteen fifty. Um, and uh, and that's that's what's really interesting is it's really driven the underground market still. So um, you know the 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 libertarian argument that once you legalize you'll have less black markets would would play out except that right now um, legal marijuana is competitive is prohibitively expensive uh, compared to black market marijuana. And at this point, because the laws have been taken away, like no one's going to stop someone for carrying marijuana or smoking marijuana in public. Um, and and, because, and at the end of the day, you don't know where they got that. Um, the regulations make it extremely hard for businesses. So I, I work in the cannabis space. It can make it very hard for businesses to comply, uh, to get the right licensure, to, to farm it, to manufacture it, and to sell it. Um, but uh, there, there are things that have been good. Um, uh, that was a criticism that I've heard from some other jurisdictions is that yeah, they legalized weed, but they legalized it for like white people without a criminal record right. and the capital to actually participate in the market. Yep. Um, so that's been an interesting thing. That's the, the the thing I love about the California law. And and again, it's one of those things when you when you're a libertarian voting on a on whether like this was a ballot measure, so it was actually up to the people. And to be a libertarian who had this opportunity to vote for weed legalization, commercial legalization, recreational commercial legalization in, in California, it's very exciting because I'm going yay legalize and then I'm going oh raising taxes and you know as a libertarian I never want to have I never want to be raising taxes but um, but the biggest thing was that they had written into the law that if you had a criminal conviction if you were serving time for a crime that would after this bill was passed no longer be illegal um, then you could file a petition and get and get like taken out of prison and or to, to removed from jail or prison um, and had your have your criminal record expunged, um, and so that I thought that was a huge, to me that that made it that made it very clear cut. It's like you know I hate I hate taxes, but the idea of being able to remove people from cages was just that was a profound thing for me, and so I absolutely voted for it. Um, but I think. I think the tax issue. I think a number of people voted against it because of the raised taxes, and and le and and less because they wanted to control people's marijuana. I think people were just but like even the Libertarian Party in California was like didn't want to endorse it because of the taxation raise. Right. Yeah. I remember um, I was actually in California in I think it was 2010 when the the last attempt. Mm -hmm. went through was it proposition 66 or something i think 66 67. is the one the one that just that did legalize i don't remember what it was called yeah. in, in well, i remember it got about 46 percent of the vote yep. and my understanding is 
at least enough that would have got it across the line that voted against it were people participating in, in the medicinal cannabis industry. Yep. There are two two things. One, uh, because legalization bills kind of change the way that medicinal is handled, a number of people in the medicinal market uh, come out against it. The second thing that we found, and this has been a huge thing, I don't know how your elections work here, so I can't speak to that, but in the U.S., we have our presidential elections every four years. So uh, 2008, 2012, 2016, 2020. Uh, we have... Um, some of our senators and our congressmen are all uh, re-elected every two years. So we have uh, non-major elections. We, we have the presidential elections and then the off-year off elections, we mm. call them. And so there's the, the or the midterms. The, the midterms. congressional midterms, yeah. Yeah, so we have the midterms and that's, you know, so that'll be uh, the 2018 and the 20, and uh, the 2018, the 2010, uh, 20, uh, 2014. And, um, and so what happens there is... Um, what we struggle, what we struggle with, is that young voters don't come out for non-presidential elections. We are still having that problem, and uh, and so, like, clearly, marijuana legalization or any of that uh, definitely gets pushed through by the younger voting population. And when uh, when it's not a presidential election, the younger votes just don't turn out. So the older votes are the ones that really push whatever whatever's right. going on during that time. Um, we, we've seen exceptions to that. The 2018, uh, there were so many young people that were angry about Trump. We did actually see a lot of, uh, of progression in the 2018 in terms of voter turnout for young people. Uh, but in 2010 specifically, there was a huge argument within the legalization community about California, uh, about California trying to put it on the ballot that year because it was like, why would you do that? Why would you do that? If you wait two years, but people didn't want to wait. They did not want to wait that right, extra two years. Right. But the problem was, is if you waited two years in the 2012 election, especially because like Obama won again, you know, like it would have been, it would just been the left. It would have been, they would have just come out and like they would think it was very important to come out and they would have voted for it. Right. Um, so, and, and I mean, we saw that with uh, 2016 had a number of marijuana wins, and it was because the young people came out to oppose Trump. And, and so while they were at it, they're like, oh, cool, weed legalization's on the bill. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. It definitely yeah. influences things. And so that, that works a little bit differently. Maybe if you could explain how ballot initiatives work, because we don't have that mechanism mm. uh, in our politics here. So, uh, and it's, again, really funny because every state has a different policy on this. California is a state that allows ballot initiatives. And so ballot initiatives have to go through a process of um, uh, careful writing of a bill. You have to get, get groups together who are writing something that's going to satisfy, you know, all the different groups of people. Um, and then you have to get a certain number of signatures. Um, and so um, I don't remember what the what the um, threshold is, but it's a lot. It's a percentage of the number of people that voted in the previous election. Um, and so uh, I just don't remember what that percentage is. But you have to go around. So you'll see uh, prior to an election, you will see people uh, camped outside of grocery stores who are saying, hi, are you a registered voter in Los Angeles? Could you please sign my petition? You don't have to vote for the thing. I just want people to have the right to vote on it. And that's yeah. a big argument we always make. I actually will always sign those even when I massively disagree with it because I think that um, I, I think that the, the right of the people to kind of to look at those those issues uh, but especially it's a form of direct to, democracy yeah, it's, a, it's a form of direct democracy yeah. um, and uh, and I mean I don't really trust I don't really trust democracy but at the end of the day I, I trust I trust people more than I trust politicians so um, so I definitely will go 
you definitely find people who would be like, well, I don't really like marijuana, but I'll vote for, I'll, I'll let you have my signature so you can get on the ballot and it can have a good, it can have a public discussion. And then uh, once it's been approved for ballot measure, um, uh, then there's a process in which various groups can, can register their uh, opposition or their approval. They can write up things. You can pay money to be in the ballot books that says, that say what your, what the, what the opposition or the in favor vote is uh, and what it means. Um, and uh, and then there's ways for people to actually see the full text of the bill before they vote on it. Um, and so then when it comes to election day, you walk into your polling place and it'll say like ballot questions and it'll have these various lists. And the ballot questions vary. It'll be stuff about drug legalization. It'll be stuff about, um, about if we're going to increase the tax on property by five cents per hundred thousand. But it, it can be ridiculously minuscule things or, or really <coughs> interesting things. Uh, and it'll say like, so that we and that money will be allotted for public schools and and there's just all these things and you'll just see them all listed out um, uh, and uh, and so that um, that's something that, that yeah we have in California we have it in a number of other states but not every state has it and how is uh, how is legalization going generally broadly across the nation um, I mean, it's been, it's just been wonderful because it's, no matter what, it's moved to the Overton window. So even in the places in which it's, you know, there's been a lot of hang-ups, so there's been struggles, um, it's really made marijuana an acceptable thing. And it means that, you know, we, we see, uh, we see politicians, um, uh, we see politicians uh, talking about it much less aggressively. They're just kind of like, like, oh, okay, yeah, that's something, you know, I'm not going to comment on it, but, you know, people are going to, you know, try things, whatever. Like, it's been, it, like, it used to be something that people were speaking out against, and now mm. they're, they're, like, avoiding the topic, or they're coming out in favor. Um, but even the ones who are against it are, like, are learning that they, they can't stop the tide. Um, but the other thing that we see is that moving of the Overton window, uh, and and it's been it's been really interesting because it's, it's it's increasing in our just popular culture as a result. And then you see legalization in some states. There was, I think it was like, I think it was like New Year's, and there was a like a CNN reporter who was on a weed bus, and she's like, I'm just surrounded by people with bongs and whatever, <laughs> and, and she's just and and they're and the the the. The news media are just having the time of their lives with it. They just think it's hilarious. They, mm. They're like, wow, this is so uh, loud. Okay, it's legal now. So here I am in Denver, and oh, everyone's got a marijuana shirt. Oh, they just handed me a joint. I guess I, I'm going to smoke it now. They're like, And they're literally doing this like on television. And it's just, it's it's amazing. So it's moved the overtime window uh, phenomenally. Um, we're seeing less convictions or less 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 opportunity for police to to um to harass people because marijuana is no longer cause for that um and we're seeing as it goes state by state it, we do you know we have our struggles we have uh california has a lot of stupid regulations that make it harder to produce the marijuana that people want um uh through things like like uh licenses for manufacturing etc but but ultimately, we're seeing a, a very organic uh, demand for it, and uh, and we're seeing just people kind of like let go of their freak out about it. So um, I think that it's been wonderful, and I think that as w there's going to be a point in which enough states have 
moved on it that the federal government will finally go, all right, let's let's get out of the way. Um, I think that I think that's a really good opportunity for libertarians, especially to uh, to talk about the fact that if marijuana were legalized and if other drugs that are perceived as less dangerous were legalized, then that could free up a lot of police resources, and those police resources could then be used for things that other that, that when like. When it comes to crime, like politicians want to be tough on crime, and I love the idea of saying, "Hey, you want to be tough on crime? Let's go after rapists and murderers and robbery and assault instead of going after like harmless drug users." Mm. And um, I think that that that's I feel like that's the next thing that we really need to be talking about is the idea that if you are pro prohibition, you are you are you are basically pro allowing other violent crimes to continue because you want to waste resources on well, and, that pursuit. And pro-propping up organized crime. Well, yeah, that Because too. the market provides, right? And Absolutely. if it provides in an illegal setting, then uh, violence and force is the only way to enforce a contract, right? Yep, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and that's, that is another thing. It's like cartel violence will reduce as a result of, of legalization. I think we've even seen like complaints by cartels in, in, uh, in Mexico about the fact that California no longer needs their weed as much. Um, I mean, we are still seeing a black market in California, but it's such an interesting black market because you've got all these farms that can't get their licensing together, or they can't they can't find the correct avenues to to to, to deal with things because of the cost of uh, that regulation. And so, what ends up happening is they're still growing marijuana, and then it just it just gets filtered into the black market. So it's not even coming from Mexico; it's not even coming from the cartels. But there's this thriving black market because people want it. Uh, the taxes are way too high, um, and uh, and there's now there's this system. That's already put in place about growing it. It just doesn't have a place to go, and so where does it go? It gets filtered into the black market. I wanted to ask you about Silk Road and okay. Ross Ulbricht. Yes. Um, yeah, I thought it would be something that you were interested in, but when we were chatting yesterday, uh, it seems like you're even more interested in it than um, than I knew. So maybe a little bit about the philosophy behind the founding of Silk Road how it functioned in the current state of play. Yeah. So uh, Silk Road existed on the dark web. I actually think there's another version of it up, but I'm not actually sure. Um, it's funny, I, I never bothered using it because the dark web, like the Tor app that I had gotten was so slow, but my partner totally bought like antibiotics just to see if he could. And I, th I think he bought something, he might have bought an acid or something. I don't even remember what he bought it, but it was it was quite entertaining uh, to, to kind of, like talk about like ooh I got antibiotics from like Serbia and because of because of this like it was it was it was quite the experiment, um, but uh, but Silk Road was created as is simply a marketplace the same way that uh, the same way that eBay or Craigslist was created to allow people to to trade in goods. Um, the thing about Silk Road specifically was that they allowed people to trade in goods that were otherwise illegal. Um, now, there are plenty of legal things on Silk Road, but there are plenty of things that weren't. Um, and they, did, they actually had hardcore policies about very specific things. You couldn't trade in child pornography, for example. That was, a, that was against the, the, the rules. But, uh, but people had an issue with weapons and guns because those were things that, that people could find on Silk Road. Um, uh, weapons, well, weapons, weapons and drugs. That's what people could find on, uh, on Silk Road, and that, that caused a lot of, uh, a lot of controversy. Um, so Ross Ulbricht was um, basically targeted as, as the founder of Silk Road. He's the alleged founder of Silk Road. Um, and, uh, and so Ross was, was caught and, and, and imprisoned and went to trial, and he is serving, what is it, two consecutive life sentences? 
Um, so there's a couple wild things about the case. So the first thing is that what the government actually got him on is they they basically said this man ran a website that you know that sold drugs and guns, and so he's a kingpin. And so the first thing is wild because like. Okay, he's a kingpin. So does that make Mark Zuckerberg like responsible for all the content that's on Facebook, right? It, it sets a very dangerous precedent for free speech and the idea of of uh, of, of websites that allow people to create their own content. Um, and so, uh, you know, is eBay responsible for for stolen property that is sold on eBay? Like, there's 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 all these things that that come from that precedent that's very very dangerous. Um, but but so the the things that he was charged with was he was charged with um, with like conspiracy for selling uh, drugs, even though he didn't. Um, he was uh, the, the the kingpin idea of like him running a drug organization. Um, and then what was really interesting is so there were two agents, there were two state agents, at, at FBIC. I don't remember what which branch they were from, but there were two agents that would basically come in as like moles to to try to. Um, uh, to try to bring him down. And what was really interesting about that whole situation is that they had complete access to chat logs. And they had the ability to, to let's say, write as Dread Pirate Roberts is what, is what he, uh, they, they called him. And so um, there's no evidence whatsoever that the kinds of things that were in those chat logs were actually produced by Ross Albrecht. Um, because the, the the two government agents who had who had uh, had come in as moles to to uh, to infiltrate and and uh, um, and gather evidence had the ability to produce that to create that evidence themselves. Um, so uh, there was massive corruption around that, and those two agents actually uh, were uh, were on trial and I believe convicted of um, some. I don't remember what the exact uh, exact conviction was, but it had something to do with tampering with evidence and 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 participating in these things themselves, not just collecting data. Um, but it puts all of the it puts all of the things that he was convicted of into question because what what they have they have this evidence, but this evidence wasn't necessarily from him, and they have no evi- they have no way of determining whether it was. Um, and then one of the other things that happened is. Uh, uh, there were a ton of claims when he was on trial. There were these claims that he had ordered like six hits, like assassin hits. And one, there were other people that had access to chat logs. Um, and so there's, again, no evidence that he was a person to do that. Uh, but um, Ross himself is a very, very nonviolent guy. Third factor is that those charges, they didn't have enough evidence for those charges. Those charges were never actually brought up in a court of law. What they did is they used it as a, they used it to jury taint. They used it to influence the way that society saw him. They saw him as a kingpin who wanted to kill six people who were getting in his way. Um, but he never, like one, there's no evidence he ordered those murders. And two, I don't think there was actually any murders carried out. I think it was just like a you know, conspiracy too. Uh, and three, uh, he was he was never that was never brought to trial and he was never convicted for that but they used that to influence the way that he was uh, that he was convicted on these lesser crimes and how he was sentenced and so I believe he is serving two consecutive life sentences he was it, it, unless a miracle happens he will never be out of prison and so he 
I think he just got transferred to another prison. I don't remember which one. Uh, but his mother is the sweetest woman in the world. Her name is Lynn Ulbricht. She comes to all these Liberty conferences and uh, and talks about the case. She talks about um, she's trying to raise money, donations, etc. The government seized a lot of his Bitcoin. Um, and uh, and in the meantime, you know, she encourages all as lots of us to write uh, to Ross. So I've written to him in, in prison a number of times. Um, I was I was doing so every six weeks or so. The last year, I've been really bad. I haven't done I haven't done it as often, and I'm I'm really really like I. I I feel so bad because he's literally in prison. So it's not like I could be like, hey, I hope you've been really busy too. No, you've been sitting in a prison cell and I've been really busy and I haven't I haven't sent him as no, enough letters. But I, I send him, you know, photos of parties that Judd and I put on. I, throw, I send him, uh, I talk about movies I love and books I love and, and, and he shares, we, we both love The Nightmare Before Christmas and things like that. So we've had we've had um, these good letters back and forth. He, he very much treats prison like this kind of this kind of like spirit like it's weird to say like spiritual tree he kind of he kind of treats it like you know something that he you know he's enduring and he's trying to make the most out of through like spiritual dealing with it so you know meditation and like he'll do fasts and stuff like that and he's reading a lot and he's just he's such a brilliantly smart person and he is stuck in prison where he can't produce anything of value um one of the craziest things that he did while he was because he's in prison is um he learned how to make a needle in prison because there's there's all sorts of crazy like things that end up happening um, he, he figured out how to like tear, take apart a battery and create like a, a sewing needle and in that so and then from that sewing needle he was able to unthread his prison clothes and then basically measure out how he wanted them to fit so they would fit better and then re-sew his entire prison outfit so that it actually fitted better like wild thing but he has all this time He's brilliant, so he has like he he, he just he has this time. He wants to do something. He just made himself, he made his life better. And there are apparently prisoners all over, like asking him to do this for them, for him, for them. And he's like, actually, this is kind of hell. Like I did it for me. Like I I was just bored, and I like I figured out how to like thread a needle, like make it make a needle and thread a needle, and, and you know, and people are you know doing prison tattoos, and he's sitting there going, I just want to make my clothes fitted. <laughs> he's like, I now have a tailored prison right. suit. Right. He totally is like a prison a tailor prison jumpsuit it's completely insane but like but can you imagine if you just had endless days to do shit like that like but that's what like this brilliant mind this brilliant compassionate thoughtful wonderful person who is accused of a terrible thing and who maybe made a mistake maybe he shouldn't have created it who knows but but like regardless and I, I think we still have to say allegedly create I think there's there's all that but but at the end of the day like the idea, the idea that that person who's committed no violent crime is just gonna be in prison for the rest of his life—it's just so—it's profoundly sad, mm. and it's uh, it's really unfortunate. And I uh, and I encourage anyone listening to to go check out it's freeross.org, um, and um, you can do things like uh, send uh, you can you can send books through like Amazon to him so because he loves to read um, and uh, and you can you can send him letters and you can you can just tell him that people are thinking of him out here and you know someday someday hopefully something comes up that that frees him I think it's really important to uh, 
I think one, it's really important to recognize our wins even when they're not as win as we want them to be. So, you know, like the, the legalization in California or in other states, you know, could be better, but holy shit, is it a lot better than it was. We are moving forward and we are seeing the Overton window move about about drugs themselves, about cannabis, about shrooms, about uh, about uh, these various these various substances that can be used for spiritual growth or, um, or, or, or have medicinal qualities or frankly are just fun. And um, I think that we're watching, uh, we're watching in our lives, lifetimes these incredible, this incredible movement towards uh, acceptance of that, tolerance of that. And maybe, maybe the rest of, like maybe everybody else doesn't go, oh yeah, I, wanted to, I totally want to do some MDMA and just go party at the rave. It doesn't matter. I, I think that the idea that this can be seen as a valid life choice, that it doesn't ruin your life, and that uh, and that some of the people that we look up to and respect, uh, entrepreneurs and, and business people and, and people who changed our world, you know, the Beatles did a shit ton of acid, they made beautiful music, right? Uh, Elon Musk smoked weed on, on Joe Rogan's show. Uh, was it Steve Jobs, I think, attributes both LSD and, and weed to uh, some of his perspectives. Uh, the guy who, in, uh, who came up with the idea of the double helix for DNA came up with it on acid. Um, there have been incredible discoveries and incredible inventions and innovations in our world, and a lot of them were caused by drugs. And um, I think that the ability for any of us to be able to open up our minds, use a substance that kind of, you know, takes away the normal neural pathways that we that we're we're set in, and allows us to kind of see outside our own boxes. I think that these are these are very beneficial to us, and I'm looking forward to a world that recognizes that more so. Sweet. And that was Ovens O'Brien recorded so earlier this year at the 8th uh, Friedman Libertarian Conference. And this is in Psychedelia uh, on 3CR, 855 AM 3CR, digital and 3cr.org.au. Coming up next is Querying the Air. Uh, if you want to find our podcast, 3cr.org.au is the place to go. Uh, also visit our website, psychedelia.org and social media for more information on everything you heard in the show. Querying the Air is up next. Enjoy your Sunday Arvo. Bye. This is in Psychedelia. This has been a 3CR podcast. You can hear In Psychedelia Live every Sunday from 2pm. Head to 3cr.org.au for more.